So I got a degree in business from ASU, uh, GCU students. It's okay. There's other schools. Um, and uh, I studied, I tried like a bunch of different things, like a bunch of different classes, a bunch of different majors. And basically I spent a lot of time uh, just staring at spreadsheets. But one of the other things that I learned from that is business has had a tremendous impact on our culture the way that we perceive and understand things. And so everything back from the industrial revolution and how that transformed uh, cities and how it impacted the way that we lived from, from like a farming lifestyle to, to all kinds of other ways. And, and even into World War II, when it brought women into the workforce and how that transcended over for the next 50 years, like business has had a tremendous impact on who we are as, as Americans. And so we have to recognize that that hasn't just impacted the way that we understand work. It has an impact on everything about how we understand life. See, the reality is that business has had such an impact that we define our success by how much we work and how much work we get done in the time we spend doing it. And the way that we understand that it starts to, to give us these personalities and even just this way that we view the way that we live based on our accomplishments and our achievements and our striving and our productivity it's not just the way that we, that we work when we go into the office or when we go into uh, the coffee shop. It's the way that we understand how we're doing as students, how we're doing as fathers, how we're doing as boyfriends and girlfriends and mothers. It's the way that we view everything that we do. What is our performance like? If I stack up these things and, and then look at it, like how I really think things are supposed to be, how am I doing? Am I doing enough? And the reality is, is that every single one of us has a different background here. We have, a, we have a diverse ethnic and religious and cultural backgrounds represented in our church. Some of you have come from, from Christian backgrounds or other religious backgrounds that are legalistic and moralistic and, and, and want you to, to check the boxes and do the right thing. Some of you, this is the first church you've ever been involved in, and that impacts the way that we view the gospel. And it's the same thing. So many of us get, get caught up in this idea that we have to do certain things, that we believe that Jesus is Savior, but then we also have to get baptized. Or we believe that Jesus is Savior, but then we can't drink alcohol. We believe that Jesus is Savior, but we can't do these things. We believe that Jesus is Savior, but we need to know the Bible better than Jesus. And some of us have realized that we can't do all these things. And so we believe that Jesus is Savior, but we have to carry these burdens on our back of the shame and guilt of all the things we've done and the pain we've caused. And that's just our lot in life. That's how we understand the gospel. Doesn't sound very good to me. What Paul is trying to get at in Galatians in chapters two and three is that we are not saved by the things that we've done. It's not Jesus plus some other things that we make up for. It's not Jesus plus for making penance and, and all of these things for what we've done. It's Jesus and the salvation and the hope that we have in him. That's what's good news. That's what we give hope in. It's not about our performance or productivity. It's about a promise. And so as we continue in chapter three today, you can follow along as I read verse 15. To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So if you're a note taker, this is the first point. We are not blessed, or we are blessed through promise, not productivity. 
We are blessed through promise, not productivity. In other words, the gospel is more about who God is than what we've done. We're not blessed by our performance. See, what Paul is trying to get at is he set these examples in the first, uh, in chapter two and in the first half of chapter three, where there's these people that are teaching, you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, in order to, to live the life that God has called for you and to receive the promises and the blessings that he's going to give to you, you have to do these things. And he's thrown that aside. He says, no, it's by faith alone. And then he gives this example, this, this example of a covenant, a covenant is a, an agreement, a contract, a promise. In scripture, a lot of times marriage gets described as a covenant. So when Lauren and I got married, we made a covenant. We had an agreement with each other. We stood in front of a group of people like this, and we made promises to one another that we were committed to each other, that we were devoted to each other, that we would love each other, that we'd have this life brought together before God and our friends. And what Paul is saying is that when you make a commitment like that, you don't just tear it apart. You stand by your word. And we understand that, right? I mean, even in contracts today, we understand that you really should just abide by the agreements that you've made. I'm not a lawyer, but I've watched enough lawyer shows on Netflix that if businesses just keep tearing up the contracts, no one's going to do business with you, right? I mean, even Taylor Swift had to re-release all of her music because she couldn't get out of a contract. They don't just change that easy. So what Paul is saying is that God didn't just create this covenant with Abraham. He created a covenant of promise and so as we look at the, the way that we are saved, as we look at the inheritance, that is the blessing that we get from God through salvation, as we look at this, we start to dive into Paul's allusions to the Old Testament. If you haven't already, you should understand Galatians is a clear picture of why we need to understand both the Old and New Testament as Christians. Because Paul continues to refer back to the stories that come from Genesis and Exodus as foundation for what he's trying to teach about who Jesus is and what the gospel means. And so as we look at this, we start to unravel what Paul is saying about this promise that God has made to Abraham. If you look back in Genesis 12, Abraham is described as this man who's really nothing that special. It's just the guy that God chose. He's an he's a old man who doesn't have any kids. His wife has been left barren. He, he has some wealth. So he's, a, he's a shepherd of sorts and has, has some livestock, but he's a nomadic farmer, essentially. But God makes this promise to him in, in verse seven of chapter 12. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. See, in that moment, God changed Abram's life. And eventually he's gonna change his name to Abraham. He made a promise to him. And what Abram began to understand is that if he is going to be, uh, believe in the promise, he's going to have to start living according to that promise. What does that mean? It really didn't mean a lot of difference for the way he was living. He was a shepherd. He continued to be a shepherd. He was married to Sarah. He continued to be married to Sarah. He didn't have any kids. He continued not to be a dad. But he believed God would provide for his promise. So he had faith because he believed. And God was faithful to that. Abram wasn't. Abram continued to wrestle and, and Sarah, his wife, wrestled with what does this mean? And, and they, if you read the stories through chapter after chapter, they kind of go back and forth and Abram becomes a liar and, and an adulterer and, and he makes a lot of mistakes, but God made a promise to him. And that promise was bigger than him. So you get to verse, uh, chapter 17 and God reiterates that. Now uh, in verse seven, again, it says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you 
and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, this is the covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham. He says, I'm gonna give you the land of all your sojournings. It's a word we see a lot in the Old Testament. What it means is their wanderings, right? Because what they would do is they would take their livestock and they'd need to find a field and the field would have grass and other things for the livestock to eat and they'd need to find water. And so they'd find a stream or a river where they could take their, their livestock over to find food. But eventually that space was kind of used. And so they would pack up and pick up their things and they would continue to move on. And this kept them out of, out of battles that other larger countries like Egypt would continue to be fighting in, but it also helped to provide for their livestock. And so this is the, the lifestyle that Abraham was used to. He's, he'd pick up and move on and, and settle and pick up and move on and settle. And eventually what God does is he makes him this promise. He, on the top of this, this hill, he can see from horizon to horizon the land that he's been wandering through, the land of his sojournings. And God says, I'm gonna give this to you. And I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you children. I'm gonna give you children upon children, generations and generations to follow you. I'm gonna bring kings out of your offspring. It's his promise to give Abraham this whole new sense of life and identity and purpose and meaning. And now he's calling him just to believe and trust in that promise. And see, the reality is, is that God was faithful to that promise. As we continue to read through to the end of Genesis, God eventually did give Abraham and Sarah a son. They named him Isaac. And Isaac had a son. They named him Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. And as, as those kids continued to grow and become adults themselves, they had kids and generation after generation in the land of Egypt, where, where at first God was using it to protect them, that land became a place of persecution and subjugation and slavery. And even still, God continued to bless them in the midst of that. Even still in the midst of that, God continued to allow those generations to grow and grow until there were thousands upon thousands of people. So we went from an, a barren couple in old age to the blessings of these people that represented tribes and almost a nation, at least certainly in population. And so God was continuing to be faithful to his promise throughout all of that time. About 430 years, as Paul notes. So for centuries, generation after generation is passing down. God is with us. God will remember us. God loves us. He's made a promise to us. He won't forget us. And then we become familiar with the story of the Exodus those people who are sitting in Egypt under servitude, under slavery and persecution, those people God remembers and has a plan to rescue them. And maybe you're familiar because you've read the story. Maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt or, or the 10 Commandments with Charlton Heston or my favorite, a Rugrats Passover. But the story begins to unfold where God reveals himself again to Moses and remembers his people. And as he does that, he calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And, and through all kinds of, of trial and triumph, God leads them into the desert and they wander in the desert, learning and understanding who he is, learning and understanding what it means to be God's people. And as they're about to enter into the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, the land that they were longing for, the land that they were searching for, the land that they knew would represent the new life for them, God gave them the law through Moses. 
We see it in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Bible. We, we see the law written down and it becomes this code and standard for them to live. And the law, in fact, becomes inextricable from their identity. They looked at Moses as his prophet who led them into the promised land, even though he actually didn't cross the border. They looked at Moses as the one who gave them the law, the way to live their life, that they might be known by being God's people. The way that they were supposed to uphold and serve and lead and continue to care for one another and worship the Lord. That's what the law represented to them. This is who they were. And then for centuries and centuries, they continued to try to follow the law through lots of success and lots more failure. And what that means is at times they saw their nation rise to power and gain wealth and, and prosperity. And they had kings like David that the people would, would celebrate. And then they also had lots of division and strife and persecution from other nations that would come in because they'd forgotten their God. Because if they obeyed the law, then God could bless them. But if they disobeyed the law, then God would judge them. That was the agreement of the covenant. But what they began to understand is they had to follow the law to be blessed. And so what they started to do is, is after hundreds and hundreds of years of this, start adding more and more teaching, more and more law, more and more things in order to not even get close. So that if it says you cannot eat this kind of food, then don't go anywhere near it. Don't touch that animal. If it says that you can't be with these kinds of people, then you don't want to even say hi to them. You want to ignore them. You, don't, you want to walk around them. You don't want to go to that neighborhood or that country. You want to separate yourself from anything that might cause you to be unclean. They were trying their hardest, striving the most, wanting to accomplish anything they could do to receive God's blessing. These are the people that are then coming into the church and saying that Jesus sounds amazing, but it's just not enough. It's just not enough. But what Paul is saying is that the law came 430 years after the promise. It came 430 years after God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you this land. In other words, I'm going to give you this new life. And God was continuing to be faithful to give that promise, to fulfill that promise to Abraham and the generations that came to the people of Israel. And God did give them that land and he continued to preserve them. He continued to be their God. He continued to call them to repentance. He continued to remember them even when they forgot him. He continued to love them even when they didn't really love him. And that is the miracle of God's promise. Because the Israelites didn't get the land because they were walking through the desert, dug up the law and started to work their way into the, this land, right? They didn't just work their way into being proven God's righteous people. And so now that they're God's people, their identity was in their promise, not in their performance. What Paul is trying to help them understand, what Paul is trying to remind them is that they didn't start as God's people in Egypt. They started as God's people in Abraham. And for generations, they were reminded to remember that God promised to Abraham. And that promise was for them, and not only for them, but to the nations, to be a blessing through the offspring. And what Paul says is that offspring is Christ. It's Jesus. And so as we read through this passage, we continue to start asking the question, look, if, if it's all through the promise, if it's all through promise, then why give the law at all? If God is just going to bless them and do what he has promised to do, why would you give the law at all? And Paul writes this in 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Right, so this is our second point. Productivity is pass-fail. And we all fail. Right, productivity is pass-fail. And we all fail. In other words, we're going to hear this passage and start to believe that under, and understand that God has made a promise to people and he's fulfilling his promise. And so why would he give the law? And he gave the law because of transgressions, because of sin. When the people of Israel entered into the promised land, they became representatives of the Lord to everyone around them. And so God gave them these laws to follow, to be holy and set apart, to be different from everyone around them because he was a powerful and mighty God. And he wanted them to be witnesses to the nations around them. And so the way that they lived their life represented who he was, represented their, their character, represented his character. The way that they lived, the way that they treated people, the way that they, they treated one another, well, that represented how God treated them, how God thought about them, how God viewed people. In other words, what is good? And so what we begin to understand now is that that didn't do anything for them. What we know, I mean, what we know in our own lives is that that wasn't enough, right? We can, we can list off all kinds of things that we're supposed to do and we continue to fail at them, right? Every single one of us has a to-do list we haven't done. Every single one of us has ways that we feel like we should have been a better brother. I should have been a better son. I should have been a better daughter. I should have been a better girlfriend. Like whatever it is, we have these things that like, these are the things we always fall short of. So it doesn't matter if we have this list of, of expectations because we just feel like we're, we're not going to meet them. But that's what Paul's saying is that the law only does that. It only shows us our own sinfulness. All it does is reveal that if God is holy and righteous and, and good above all and everything else, we're not. But that was the purpose. The purpose of the law was to reveal our own sinfulness. The purpose of the law was to show us that we are sinners. It was to show us that we are guilty, that we are lowly, that we're not enough. And so as Christians, we, we probably just think, well, then the law is just contradictory to the promise. God has made this promise to bring blessing, and now he's given us this law to, to change it, but that's not what he's done at all. In fact, Jesus addresses this himself, being criticized for the way that he's living his life and some of the teachings he's saying. In the Sermon on the Mount, he starts in, verse, uh, in chapter five with this. So Jesus says he did not come to, a, to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Right? Jesus didn't come to, to throw everything out. He didn't come to just start a new covenant and, and to forget everything that happened. Jesus came to fulfill the covenant that God had promised in the first place. And even in the midst of the Mosaic Covenant, right, this, this law, Jesus didn't come to just toss it out. He came to fulfill it himself. Because the reality is that while you and I can't do it, he did. While you and I can't measure up, he does. While you and I aren't perfect, he is. He is the righteous one. He is the offspring who's inherited the land. He is the one who has an inheritance for all of us to receive. And we receive it not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Through promise, through mercy and love. 
through grace. Because productivity is past fail. We're all failures, but he's not. That's the goodness, the good news of the gospel. It's not simply that we are all sinners and broken and we need to repent and be sorrowful. It's that we are sinners, but God loves us. He sees us and he knows us and he wants to take us out of that brokenness and bring us healing. He wants to take us out of our sojournings and give us a new home. He wants to give us a new identity. And that promise that God made to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, he has fulfilled through Jesus because that invitation to follow him has come not just through, uh, not just through the Jews, but through Jesus into all of us. Through every nation, tribe, and tongue, God wants to call us to himself through his son, through the sacrifice that he's made, through the life that he lived, through his death and resurrection to give us hope and life. And we see that even in Revelation 21 at the end. Uh, Jesus is, or God is describing what, what heaven looks like. God's describing what our eternity is, looks like, right? In the covenant that he made with Abraham, it's an everlasting covenant. It's this covenant of land. Remember, Abraham's just looking at the land that he's been wandering through, and God says, I'm going to give you this as an everlasting covenant. In Revelation, it reiterates that. You know, there's this picture of heaven coming to earth. There's this new city, a new Jerusalem is described. This is what heaven is like, that people dwell together in peace and harmony, that God is with us and he is our God and we are his people. That is the picture of heaven that we have. That's the hope of our eternity. That God has, has blessed us and made a promise that he has fulfilled through Jesus to give us this peace. To give us this new life, to give us this identity. And it's not something we strive for. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we try to measure up to be uh, accomplishing enough to do. It's because God loves us. It's because of what Christ has done for us. It's because he is righteous. He is good. It's because he is for us. And he's done this for us. And so it's in Christ alone that we have salvation. It's in Christ alone that we have inheritance. It's in Christ alone that we have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning. And God, as we think about the ways that you have done so much through your son, Jesus, for us, Father. We praise you for being a God who is committed to his promises, a God who sees us and knows us and has a plan for our good. God, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts and in our minds as we sing your praises and as we go out today, Father, that you would remind us that it's not about striving and achieving and accomplishing, it's about believing. It's about believing that you love us that you desire for us to be in your presence, that you want us to know you as you know us. And it's all through Jesus, Father, that we're able to receive that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.